I always remember father and son. Boys and father and son was uh, the intro of it was just piano on its own. When you used to hear the counting go and the butterflies in, the, in my stomach would turn over because the screaming would drop down a little bit, not completely, but it would drop down a little bit and suddenly like, oh my God, everyone's listening to me playing piano. Nerve wracking, really nerve wracking. And uh, yeah, it, it was a fantastic feeling. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Keys Coach Podcast. My name's Adam and I'm a keys player. And this is the podcast where I sit down with other piano, keys and synth players and talk about their life in music. For those of you that have been listening uh, to the podcast for a little while, you'll notice that this intro sounds slightly different to usual. It's because um, I'm actually up in Manchester this week and I completely forgot to bring my little podcast mic with me. So um, I'm doing it on my phone, which is apparently, (laughs) apparently a lot of people do podcasts like this anyway. Um, someone was telling me the other day, actually, that the BBC, a lot of the BBC reporters actually do their news reports on their phone because the quality is so good now. So, uh, yeah, slightly different, slightly different intro to usual. Um, but business as usual, we've got an amazing guest for you today uh, called Richard Taylor. He's an incredible keys player and he, um, he's had a really, really interesting career playing with loads and loads of different bands and artists. Um, he was actually the keys player that did a lot of the early gigs with boy bands and girl bands right in the heyday of all of that. Bands like Boyzone and Westlife and All Saints and all these all these kind of things back right around kind of like the late 90s, um, early 2000s. He also works with loads of different artists now. Um, he's got his own studio. He does a huge amount of really, really interesting projects. And uh, this was a fascinating conversation I had with him. Um, he shared so many different insights into the industry and how it's changed over those years. He knows so much about gear. We do a super, super deep dive on his, uh, his gear setup, which he uses on gigs. And uh, yeah, I really hope you enjoy this episode. I certainly enjoyed chatting with him. Massive thanks to Richard for coming on. Just before we dive in, thank you so much to everyone that has been sending messages uh, about the podcast. It's been really great to hear that people are actually really finding these conversations really interesting and really, really useful. Um, so thank you. I'm just finishing up a project at the moment. I've been writing these two books and I'm in the kind of final editing stages of it. They're like music theory books, but kind of aimed at popular musicians. A lot of music theory books are kind of aimed we're on the classical side of things and all the references in the books are kind of maybe classical music references and all that kind of thing. These are definitely aimed at people that want to play popular music and are kind of set up in those ways. So I've been writing them for the last year. It's been a massive project, but I'm so I'm so pleased with how they're coming out. But yeah, it's just the last editing stages. So the end is in sight. As soon as I finished editing those books though, the next kind of phase of this whole Keys Coach uh, journey is going to kick in, so I can't wait to tell you all about that. I'm also thinking about doing a little bonus episode on the two books and kind of how I wrote them and what they're about and how I went about writing them. So, yeah, look out for that in the coming months. I'm going to try and make that happen. Yeah, so thank you anyway, though, to everyone that's reached out about the podcast. Do remember to sign up to the waitlist. There's a little link in the description, so if you want to hear about the next phase, do go and put your email in there and uh, I'll send you more details. Right, let's dive into it. So this is the conversation I had with the amazing Richard Taylor. Awesome, Richard, thank you so much for coming on the You're podcast. Welcome. It's great to um it's great to see you. Whereabouts are you at the moment? 
So I'm in my studio, um, which is in um, about 15 miles north of, uh, well, actually 15 miles east of Peterborough. Um, oh, okay, nice. Yeah, it looks like a great, great setup. I've seen it on your Instagram. It looks very, um, I, li- I like the amount of screens you've got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a small room, but, um, but I'm yeah. based out of my brother's studio. So he has a large live room um and a drum room so if i do need to do anything i can i can span out into that room but most of the stuff i do stuff myself is all just simple production isn't sometimes it's just me and another person so it's fine fantastic fantastic well i'm sure we're going to delve into like all the stuff you do production wise but this is kind of a podcast aimed at piano and keys players fundamentally right. so and you're a piano and keys player yourself actually how would you describe yourself because it's interesting this is something i've had with um a few different people i've spoken to some people describe themselves as keys players and some people describe themselves as piano players and i haven't quite worked out what the difference is how do you, how do you describe it, what you do musical prostitute <laughs> 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 you pay Fantastic. me, I'll play it. Now, um, yeah. I, I guess, I, I think I just put keys player, yeah? I mean, that's it's a strange perception because once you say piano player or pianist, a lot of people get scared off because mm. they, they automatically think that you're this kind of cocktail lounge player. So, right. yeah, I, I think just putting keys player, yeah? Um, I mean, predominantly most of the gigs that I do and have always done are, are piano-based um I mean, you know, par kind of like Bananarama, which is more kind of like keys, yeah. not so much piano. Um, yeah, it, it's all it's all piano based stuff they do. But I'm not by any means a pianist that would do a cocktail cocktail lounge uh, session. <laughs> no. Right. Oh, I see. Okay, that's cool. That's uh, that's that's great. So, do you want to? I mean, it'd be cool to hear how you started. Actually, and I've kind of done this with a few people. We've gone right back to the beginning. So. What was your first contact with music or the piano? Was it the piano in the first place? Well, uh, so it, it's a very much a, a my, my my father was a pianist, an accordion player, okay. and a pianist. Uh, my mum was a dancer actually, but I, it was my brother and I were brought up within the family business, which was a recording studio. Okay. So, I mean, Dad obviously wanted us to do something musically even though he did say I want you both to get a proper job, but he did, <laughs> he did want us to sort of do stuff within the music industry. I didn't want to play piano. Um, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. I, 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 I was a tap dancer for a while. I was in my early teens. Good grief. Don't ask me to do that now. <laughs> um, but, um, and then I actually did about six months of, of piano lessons and I, I, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Um, I didn't practice. I didn't want to do it. Whereas my brother was going through, he did all these grades. Um, and I kind of like, when I, when I left school, I was still working for my father in the studio. We'd both been brought up to work as engineers in the studio. Right. Um, but I wasn't really kind of playing much. And I was, I was mm. if anything, I was playing what I wanted to play when I wanted to play. Um, and then early teens, couple of local bands and I started playing more and then I was working in music shops and I was selling keyboards so I was playing all day but again it was just my own kind of a style of playing um and can I uh, ask um can I ask why you didn't like your piano lessons I guess it was I didn't I didn't want to do classical I, I, at that right. time I had no love of classical music and I didn't want to play it and and at that time I didn't didn't foresee myself being a, a pianist or anything, I wasn't really sure what it was going to be. Um, so no, I, I mean, I'm trying to think how old I was when I had piano lessons. 
I suppose I was about 12 or 13, something like that. And no, okay. I didn't take to it. Um, so, uh, yeah. I, I, but then, like, once I'd started playing more and I was in bands, still didn't really think that I needed to be kind of trained and have all the notation read and reading skills. Um, mm. I didn't think that that was ever going to come to much anyway. I was happy just playing in these local bands and and I was selling keyboards and I was loving doing that. Um, so were you were you playing a lot of stuff by ear? Was that kind of the way you were mainly ear, yeah. working? But it was all, yeah. you know, the bands I was in were original material. So, you, you know, yeah. you write it as you're going along. So it wasn't, and then even then, if it was someone else in the band that written it, yeah, it, it was it was never too taxing to learn what the, the chords were. And, you know, obviously I had a knowledge of what, um, what chords I was playing, um, yeah. but 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 no reading skills. Um, I have a, a, I suppose I've I've memorized some of it, and um, I I can read an arrangement. I've no problem in, in following an arrangement, and if the chords are written down, um, I'm fine with that. It's just I can't read the notation as such. Okay, so it's like the the actual like notes on the stave. Yeah, I mean that that's the case with a lot of people I've been um. But to be honest with you, it's like cool. I can count on I could probably count on one hand how many times I would have needed the ability to read. Um, there's been a, there's been you know a, a few times where it might have been useful, mm. um, but within the work that I've done, I haven't needed to do it. Um, and if yeah. I have, and I've needed arrangements doing or charts writing out, hey. I have my brother for that. <laughs> <laughs> is your, your brother's obviously, uh, you said he's in the studio next door to you, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. So, so yeah, he, do you work together a lot? As well. um, right. But um, but our kind of, um, our, our, not our musical taste as such, but the, 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 the stuff that we did went very different ways. Um, I mean, at first, yeah, when, when, when I was kind of, when Chris was, I think, 16, 17, he was out gigging as a jazz player. Um, and then Chris started playing for Ruby Turner and started doing those sort of gigs. But by the time I was, I'd started kind of touring, we'll, we'll come to that in a bit, I'm sure. But he was, uh, he'd always been more on the classical crossover artists. So, right, okay. Uh, and for those, yes, there were always charts generated. Um, um, so yeah, we, we, we became kind of very different players, but it's, it's, it doesn't hold us up though. It's no, it's funny, isn't it? It doesn't, it's, it's, it's strange how you can both sort of come at the music from different angles. The, the self-taught thing's really interesting. So when you were teaching yourself and, and working stuff out by ear, presumably that wasn't around like a, you didn't have YouTube or things like that, no. which a lot of players would have now if they were teaching themselves and kind of courses you can take online. How did you teach yourself or was that kind of shrouded in kind of no, mystery? No, it's not shrouded. It's, it's a very odd question. And, and I don't think anyone's asked me before, actually. And I'm not even really aware that I did teach myself. I think... Right. I mean, playing by ear, I mean, I haven't got perfect pitch at all. Um, but the playing by ear, it, essentially you're only copying anyway. Um, you know, you, you, you are copying. And I, I guess I, I did have some knowledge of my piano lessons. And I'm, and I'm sure I still was, was asking my brother Chris and my dad, you know, what I was playing or, you know, the, my dad still wanted me to try and to do stuff. And, yeah, he would, he would still persist with bits of music in front of me and try to make me play it. But so there obviously was a, a knowledge of, of what I was doing, but I was just playing along with stuff, really. I was a real funky boy. I wasn't a jazz boy. I listened to a lot of funk and a lot of soul as I was growing up. And, you know, and I would play along to that music. Yeah. Um, 
and and I guess the only kind of jazz stuff I was listening to when I was in my kind of you know when I was like 16, 17, I used to listen to a lot of Jeff Law, but I couldn't play all mm. that. I couldn't play it at all. Couldn't play the jazz. Right. But I loved all the chopping stuff that used to happen in funk. Um, so you kind of like, I suppose you develop this this skill, if you want to call it a skill, of 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 comping, okay, of, of yeah. playing along. Um, and then I guess experience of when I was selling Clavanova pianos and pianos, I would have to learn bits of music. Um, so that's where... To demonstrate the, to the punters on, in the shop, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. So that's where, yeah. you know, the, 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 the piano, I was, I, I was, I was, I, I idolised David Foster and, right. and and his piano playing and his approach to yeah. piano. There was some, um, some a couple of albums that David did, which is, I mean, oh, Jesus, he probably, people will call it technically lift music, where he was playing kind of covers, but in his style of doing it, and and that comes out in my playing still, um, right. as does Bruce Hornsby comes out in my playing as well. Um, it's just a style of the, of the way that I play, um, but otherwise, still now, if I if I have to, you know, which. You know, with a with a band, if there's a there's a song and it's a ballad and there's piano, we just copy it. We just copy yeah. it. And I don't know to people listening, they probably think, you know, what the hell's he talking about? I I can't explain. I could I could just do it. I could just copy. Um, and mm. I know so many players that are like that. Um, yeah. So keyboard players who are far more talented than me, um, who have gone who've done it in church. Yeah, and um, that way they they have uh, it's a, a, a fantastic skill where they'll learn in church to play, and they have to be able to play in every single key. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter what it is; they might learn it, and then they'll have to then transpose it instantly. Um, that's a skill. Yeah, I still have to think about that. This, you know, if we suddenly have to change a key, yeah, I have to go and relearn it as such, and that's because I don't have that knowledge straight away of being yeah. able to. To, to shift it up as I'm playing. Um, so um, I think, the, but the ear is a very, very, very powerful way of playing. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think, I think if you approach music through like playing by ear, I think you, if that is your way into it and that is the thing that drives you, I think that can be an incredibly rewarding way of playing because it means that you basically can develop skills where you can hear a piece of music and like you're saying be able to sit down and play it and and I think that's that's so particularly for me that is I I, I do I work I, I work a lot with like classical teachers and 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 people that teach um kind of the grades like you were saying and the thing that comes yeah. through whenever I sort of do these conferences and things is that they'd all love to be able to play by ear and I think it seemed very strange to me that there's this kind of the, the way music education pushes you down the reading route sometimes i'm i'm massively generalizing but it tends to be that it pushes you down that road road and i don't i don't quite know how that's happened well like myself it becomes unattractive right. to some people they don't want to do that and they know that they don't want to yeah. you know be a classical player do i wish i could read yes i do if i'm honest i do wish that sometimes whenever mm. quiet year <laughs> and there's not much going on and i think to myself oh god i could probably i could you know if i, if I could read better i could probably do a west end job yeah um not that that's been ever that attractive to me i mean so many of my friends do it but to me it's almost feels like a a nine to five job just sitting yeah, in yeah. And, and, and playing and it doesn't feel like performing as much um 
a lot of the musicians that I use, we integrate. There's some that, that are absolutely amazing readers, um, but they don't use those skills in the bands that they play with me. Uh, but they're still able to, because that's what you're saying. There are a lot, a lot of people that only read. And if you say to them, oh, just play me something. They're like, well, have you got any music? No, just play me something. And we can't do that. Yeah. So whereas for me, if it's, and I guess that, that comes down to the writing side of things as well. If I sit at a piano and somebody just play something, then I'll just start, I'll just start twinking along. And then before you know, it's like, oh, that's quite a, quite a good little chord sequence. Yeah. You started writing. And you're off, you're off and you're making stuff. And I, I think we should talk about kind of how you got to where you are today. So you kind of were, you were playing in lots of originals bands. How and you I were got doing... where I am today. Um, <laughs> most of it probably luck. Right. Okay. Um, um, yes, actually, my my launch into to, to touring was absolute pure luck. Um, I so I I continued my career on selling selling equipment, and by the time I was in my early twenties, I was still I was still working for Dad. I was still doing more, more production as well. Right. Um, you'd have artists that would come in, and they'd just ask for an engineer, but then you know naturally you like is that okay if i say this i might have a suggestion and before you know you are yeah you you you're into that world um but uh i was i ended up working for a uh, company that sold studio equipment by appointment only so it had kind of moved from keyboards and then i got made redundant um which was like oh god now what am i gonna do uh, so i started again working more for dad okay. more stuff in the studio more engineering um and then I got a call out of the blue um, from a from a tour manager, uh, and he said, "Oh, a friend of mine has uh, recommended you. We're looking for a keyboard player." And I didn't even know the guy that had recommended me. Still don't know who it was, actually. Yeah, it's almost slightly mysterious, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, the studios were in Birmingham. I'm a Brummie. I've, you know, I've not lived there now since like, '96, something like that. But yeah, it was someone in Birmingham that had, had recommended me, and this 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 tour manager said can I come and see you? And I was like, well, you know, I'm in Birmingham. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that's not a problem. I'll, I'll, I'll come up. And he came up from London and he turned up a little bit early. And I was, um, I was working with a, a blues artist guy called Keith Randall from Birmingham. He's a great blues guitarist and songwriter. Right. And we've done quite a bit of stuff together. And this guy, he turned up a little bit early and he sort of sat in on the session and then he just basically said, look, we're, you know, this is a boy band. We're going to do their first tour, which is a theater tour. Um, and we need someone to to look after the band. But actually, that, at that point, I must point out, the band was just basically me and a drummer. I mean, it grew gradually, but it was just, it was that, and track, and he wanted someone that could get the track sorted out. Right. Um, my, my God, it was on, it was on Tascam DA88. It was on, back on, in those days. There wasn't any programming as such. Um, and well, if there was programming, he had to then transfer it to tape. So, um and uh, he said, oh, we're looking for someone to end it. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, okay. I said, well, I, I, think, I think I can do that. And we chatted for a while. And um, when he left, and I remember going to a brother and going, what's an MD? <laughs> <laughs> said yes before you quite uh, so, knew what um, you were saying yes for, yeah. Um, and, that, and that was the very first tour I did in 1995 with Boyzone. And it was just me and a drummer from Birmingham, Jamie Little. Um, and then that band started growing. It then became a four-piece. Um, by the time we finished with Boyzone, we were on. We were a four-piece band, three three backing vocals, four-piece horn section, percussion, blah blah blah, all the rest of it. So yeah, it kind of grew and grew and grew. So 
I think that's luck. I think that's luck. Yeah. Um, he hadn't really kind of watched me play keys or anything, and um, uh, and I'm still working for Mark Plunkett these days now. He's now yeah, it's amazing how those things, those projects, have such a long tail, don't they? They kind yeah. of yeah. All, all that, all that work. Then, so once I'd worked for that one band, it was actually the um, the production company, the touring company, Production North. Um, a very good friend of mine, Steve Levitt, who would come to me with other bands. So that's how then the work the work came in. It wasn't necessarily it wasn't it wasn't actually from um from their management or their manager. It was from the production company. And he would be approached by other artists, we want to put a tour on, blah blah blah. Production North would be actually putting the tour on and and he was actually coming up with the work and wow. that's where it came from. And it, I think it was I'd done Boyzone and then I think it was all Saints were next and five, nine one one, um, and then Fame Academy and it all it all started coming from the same people. So there is the luck. And it is it, you know, if people say, Oh, it's not what you know, it is who you know. It's it is very, very true. I was very, very lucky that I yeah. had my break into it. Um and I had a kick up the arse and it, it, it got me in. Um and obviously at some point, yeah, you have to work it. It doesn't always just come in. There are times when you have to get out there and push yourself. Of course. It, it doesn't always fall on your doorstep. Um, mm. But, yeah, I was lucky. I was very lucky. It's funny you say oh, you had to go and ask what an MD was when you finished, when you just accepted the gig. So how do you... Um, so, you, I mean, you must have had to learn literally on the job a lot of those things if you hadn't done them before. So how did you learn, like, what to do as an MD? <laughs> well, I mean, quite literally, I mean, yeah, I obviously knew the rough idea, but I, I, a lot of it, yeah, I was, was a lot of suck it and see. But, you know, my dad always said, you know, MD doesn't stand for musical director, it stands for master of diplomacy. Right. Um, and a lot of it anyway is, is and still is now, a lot of it is, is uh, time management, people skills, there's some of it is very little to do with music. Um, yeah. It's everything else. Common sense. Um, learning when to shut up and get on with it. Learning when to sit on the fence and just go, right, let's not, not push on this. Um, and it's it's all your people skills, yeah. It's um, it's the everyday common sense, a lot of it. Um, no, that's what a lot of people I've spoken to have said. There's a huge amount of, um, like you say, people skills and actually music's just, music's just one yeah. small part of it. I mean, you can actually do weeks of preparation work and speaking to people before you even play a note. Right. Um, and even when you're, you're, you're pitching for a gig, you might be having to deal with the management and the artist. And before they even heard you play or anything, it, it, you'd have done a couple of weeks of, of, of meetings over the internet or going and seeing them and meeting them. So yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of it at that side. Um, you know, it's not about being a great pro. Everybody's mm. a producer now. Everyone's a programmer. Um, you know, and and it's so much easier now. Um, it's so easy now just to phone a producer and go, "Are we doing your song live? Going to get the stem? Bung into Logic? Oh, look, it's programmed. It's done." Um, when I when, when I started to say it was it was tape, and uh, and then it progressed to everything was you you would have to go to the studio with the masters. We were sampling stuff. We were using emulator E64s and, and Akai MPC3000s, and you were taking snippets and assigning them all to, to 88 keys and physically playing them in. Um, 
you know, with strings and stuff, you would try and take as long a phrase as you possibly could before it started drifting out yeah. and, and firing them in. So that was the programming. Um, and, and then sometimes you don't get stems. Sometimes you have to start from scratch. And that's when you, you use your project, your production skills. Um, yeah. Because you're having to again copy. It's all about copying. Yeah, and you um, you learned those skills early when you were when you were when you were playing piano. So it all kind of fed into um, fed I into I that. My, I think I learned my 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 programming skills when I was working in a music shop. Right. I I, I learned my people skills from working in a music shop. Um, you know, in the days when you know. It doesn't sound too old, but yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it scares me now. In fact, I like, you go into Curry's and ask about TV, they get on Google. They don't know. But, you know, you know when, and this is going back to, I remember saying DX7 when it first came out in 1983. Right. You know, and you had like a couple of days and then people were coming in and asking you about it. You know, and you had to show them. So you had to, you know, you had to learn. So my knowledge of gear came from there, really. Uh, and then obviously through dad telling me and teaching me and my brother how to work in the studio. Yeah, it's fantastic. You, you So you were obviously working with all those bands through what I imagine was the absolute heyday of that boy band, girl band yeah. thing, which was kind of like uh, like late 90s, early 2000s, am I right? Yeah, absolutely, what, yeah. What was that? Those gigs must have just been absolutely wild and kind of <laughs> crazy. <laughs> the first boys out gig, because uh, I remember they were saying, oh, you've got to use this, um, you've got to use these monitors, these ear, in ear monitors. I was like, why? I said, we'll just, I'll just have two wedges. And they're like, yeah, but you know, there's click involved. I went, oh, of course, yeah, we've got to wear these ears for the click. And and then I remember the monitor guy going, plus the fact he said, you won't hear those wedges. I was like, why not? I said, you know, they'd be loud. He went, trust me, you won't. And I can remember it clear as day. Real Pavilion was the first gig. Right. And I remember walking, walking out on stage and just this horrendous screaming. There was just like <laughs> one continuous long scream that didn't stop. Um, yeah. It was just this horrendous noise, and then you know, yeah. So in ear monitoring was the was the, the was only the way to cope to it with it back then, um, and uh, yeah, it it was a fantastic feeling, nerve wracking, really nerve wracking, um, and again, you know, you kind of. I always remember father and son, boys and father and son was uh, the intro of it was just piano on its own, and you used to hear the counting go. And the butterflies in the, in the stomach would turn over because the screaming would drop down a little bit, not completely, but it would drop down a little bit. And suddenly like, oh, my God, everyone's listening to me playing piano. Yeah, very exposed. <laughs> yeah, very exposed, yeah. Yeah. Do you get nervous when you play? Is that something that kind yeah, of you yeah, do? I still, yeah, uh, um, I, st I still do get nerves, yeah. Um, yeah. But, Have you got any strategies that you found that work well for that? You, you could take me to say alcohol or something. Oh, right? No, no, I'm not. No, sorry. <laughs> I just realised as soon as I asked that question that um, it did sound like I was trying to say that. I, I, I don't know. I just, I, it's been really interesting talking, doing this podcast with loads of different keys players because I've, I'm always sometimes surprised at how nervous some people do say they get, considering they do this all the time. You know, and well, um, it, it, the funny thing is, it's like um, I've, um, I've been side coaching for Ronan in the Voice in Germany. Okay. So we've actually been doing a lot of kind of work with the contestants and that's always something that comes up about dealing with nerves. And um, I always say just turn it to adrenaline. Um, 
And I, for, for me, I actually still believe it's important to be nervous. Yeah. Because you, otherwise you can get a bit cocky. I got this. It's fine. This is usually when you go up on and you mess it up completely. Um, so having that, having that little bit of being the pit of the stomach of butterflies of like, God, I don't, do I know this? Do I know this? And, and it still happens. It, um, for me, small audiences, it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, oh, I'm, really? Really, I'm really nervous in front of like, you know, 50 people, 200 people. Okay. You know, a full theatre or an arena, it's, just, it's fine. It's just a wash of people. Yeah. Um, is, yeah. The, 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 the personal side of it's gone. Um, I've never played Ronnie Scott, but to me that would be the, the, the height of nervousness where <laughs> yeah. there's someone right next to you. Yeah. Um, and plus the fact then, you got a pretty good chance you might be playing in front of another musician as well. Mm. Um, when my brother comes to a gig, I'm a nervous wreck. Right. Um, okay. You know, if there's another keyboard player there, but it's good. But it's good though. I enjoy yeah, it. I like. You... I like that kind of feeling of uh, of the nerves. And I think uh, I think it's important to have that. As to how to get rid of it, I have no magic therapies of of, of like you know. Um, you you've got to have a lot. You've got to have the confidence. I always feel lucky that I'm not the guy at the front. Mm. Uh, I'm much happier the guy at the back. Black lighting, I'm cool. That's yeah. fine. Um, I, I always feel for someone who's going to get up there and, and front it um, and to an address an audience. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a scary bit. I totally yeah, agree. Yeah. You're standing I, up I, and talking. I, no, I don't know. I, I couldn't do that. Um, but, um, yeah, I have, no, I have no real cure for how to get rid of nerves, but there's got to be a little bit of self-confidence. But yeah it's amazing i yeah i mean it's interesting you say you you feel sort of less nervous when you really know the stuff so what is your what is your process for learning a bunch of music for a set or a gig or a tour or something um again well it's it's, it's the air process but um, you know I, I i will still um i'll do cheat sheets okay um, which you you know depending on how long the rehearsal period but <laughs> as things progress these days rehearsal periods are getting shorter and shorter and shorter right. um gone are the days where you used to get two weeks to rehearse for a gig you know get lucky to get two days um so i will write um cheat sheets out but they will be they won't be written on manuscripts mm. um and i might have them on an ipad and they'll literally just be There'll be no there'll be no rhythmical part written down. It's literally all just say you know a, a, the chord. I won't even put how long that chord's held for. Just the chords are there, so it's just literally just a a, a guide side of things. But again, yeah, I'll sit down with the originals, um, and you just play along with it. Um, sometimes I'll play along with it and just quickly jot out just jot what chords it are. Other times I'll go no, you want to put it into memory. Okay. Um, so the more you play along with it, the quicker it goes into your head. Tend to find that the the more time you do cheat sheets, the more time you're stuck on cheat sheets, and it's hard right. to get them off. If yeah, get off the book. Yeah, if you if you if you're if you're looking at those every night, you're not learning them. Um, so you have to then go through that process of you'll have one gig where it's really bad. Um, there'll be definitely one gig where you feel you've played shit because you've made a mistake because you're going through that process yeah. and there's nothing worse than going i've got this you start playing it and then you go i can't remember and then you look at the cheat sheet and you don't know where you are yeah that's that, yeah that's not a not a good way of doing it um i think on um when we have depths on on the bands that i work with now and i i say to them don't worry don't you don't you know, if you're doing just a couple of gigs 
I don't mind an iPad on stage or if you've got charts you want to just cheat sheets, that's fine. I'd rather you do a great job of it. Particularly if you're only going to cover another a couple of gigs, I'm not expecting you to spend a week learning the songs and putting mm. them in your head just to come and cover a couple of gigs. So um, again, it's, it's artist dependent. Some artists don't mind. Some artists like, oh, I don't want to see anything on stage. But <laughs> everyone's using a laptop on stage now or an iPad for other stuff. So yeah. people are used to seeing Monitoring it anyway. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean you're reading a chart. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it's good. I mean, I, I was talking about that with someone else the other day, actually, just about how how do you know when you know it? <laughs> how do you know when you've actually? Because it, it's so funny, isn't it? How sometimes something on the original track can trigger your mind that maybe isn't yes. there on the actual gig, you know. And I, I've yeah. I've certainly had that when I've been learning stuff, and then you suddenly get on the gig and suddenly you can't remember. It's like, why can I play it along with the track at home, but I can't play it here? It's because the drum feel was different, or the bass feel was different, or the yeah, you know, know. it's it's. And, um, and the thing is that that, that we'll kind of um, you know the muscle memory is a really big part of this now. So with with Ronan still, we we very rarely have a rehearsal these days. Very rare. Um, it's been the same band for so many years, and and we've played the song for so many years. But sometimes a song will go in a set, and you haven't played it for a while, um, and you're like, oh shit, I can't remember that. I can't. I can't. I can't think at all. Yeah. But then you just sit down. And you go, oh yeah, I got it. The mus the muscle when you put your hands on your instrument and your keys mm. and guitar, whatever, it, it, it comes back. It's it, it's in the it's in your brain. It the is in there somewhere, yeah. Um but what you're saying about things being different. So recently we had a gig in, in Asia and um we Ronan didn't take the, the whole of the UK band. It's just been so expensive to to fly these days mm. and the travel. So yeah. we used a pickup band. So it was just myself and the backing vocalist that went. Uh, we had a day's rehearsal in Jakarta and a, and a band that we'd used a couple of times on other like kind of corporate things. Um, but there was one particular night where, uh, you know, we'd had a travel day, we'd flown somewhere with an internal flight. And before you'd even got to soundcheck, you'd done a seven hour day. So it was a little bit yeah. of fatigue, not great monitoring on a gig. Uh, and, a bunch of players that have only played the songs a couple of times we launched into a song and it was so it so threw me i was like i just couldn't i couldn't get in the zone with it right i'm sure to the audience it was perfectly okay maybe joe the backing vocalist might tell you different to that but <laughs> I, but it might but it was enough just the fact that the guitar if at the beginning of the song was so differently played it, it really threw me yeah um and I, I, I suddenly, the, the muscle memory really had to come into play because yeah. I couldn't rely on what they were playing. It was, sounded so different to me. So, mm. yeah, things can throw you off. Yeah, man, um, hugely. So when, so when you were working with these, um, these bands, and I guess even now, are you mainly getting involved on the live show side of stuff, or are you also doing the studio work as well? It's very rare that I've... Um, well, it hasn't happened, really. Um, I, you know, when... A, one of the artists that you're working with will go into the studio. Somebody will be producing it. Mm. Um, so unless you're involved on the writing side of it, no, it's very rare that you get the call to go and play on the album because a producer will want to use his players. I, I'm exactly the same. You know, it, it, it's like, you know, an artist will come in and they go, oh, is it okay if um, my guitarist plays on this? And I'm like, well, I prefer if it was one of my guys because you've got in your head of what you want it to sound like. So, and I've got my various players that I use and I know what 
what they'll deliver. Um, and it's a risk then taking someone else's player and then you get them in a the studio. They can't, they can't do what, what you want. There's got, I mean, there's, you know, I've got a couple of players that I use for a lot of things, but I know if I, if I, if I've got a track and I'm working on it, I can just call Tim up and go, right, I need this. I need that. And he'll go, I know what you need. And he'll send it back. And I'm like, it's there. It's there mm. because he's always done the stuff and he knows what I like. Um, so I think there's a lot of that that goes in. It's not necessarily that the artist doesn't want you, but the, whoever's producing the album will want his players, or it might be him. You know, he might be he might be playing keys. He might the producer might be a keyboard player, um, so he'll end up playing it. So it doesn't happen that often, no. Yeah, so it's mainly it's mainly on the live the live side you work. Yeah, it's the live side of things. Yeah, so let, let's talk a little bit about the live side. How has your kind of actual setup on stage changed over the years? Have you do you do you have like a set like keyboard that you just is like your kind of go to, or do you have very much different rigs for different bands? Because for everyone listening, um, Richard plays with so many different people: Emin, Ronan Keating, Banana Rama. You've played with David Foster, Nile Rogers, all these massive, massive sort of musicians. So has your has your setup changed over those over that year? As, uh, the, this, what essentially has changed over the years is it's got smaller. Um, gone are the days where, you, you know, you used to have a rack with loads of modules in it and it was all so complicated and the yeah. tech had to help you work out all the program changes. And I think gear has just got a lot better over the years um, and we don't have to, to take as much stuff out. I actually still, I, I'm, I'm lucky that the artists that I work for, I don't, I haven't had to rely um, much on on sampling. Okay. Um, and I've got a good friend of mine, Ashton, who, was, who played for Anne-Marie, had to do a lot of sampling to reproduce the sounds that were used on the album. Um, so that affects what you're using setup-wise live. But um, my, most of the time, I'm lucky that I can take stock sounds and just edit them. Um, so now I tend to use just a, a stage piano um which i use a roland rd 2000 um and with ronan i have a hammond xk on top because there's still a lot of hammond work on that um but with with, uh, with boys life and banana armor i use a roland juno ds on the top one um, because i need a lot of kind of like individual little synth sounds yeah so a roland rd 2000 on the bottom which is essentially just pianos uh, and then a roland juno ds on the top um, and that covers everything for me, really. When I'm working with Emin, there's another keyboard player. So I'm usually on a, just a Hammond, um, which will be a, usually hired in for me. It'll be a B3, or sometimes it might be an XK, but a two manual. It doesn't need to be two manual, but if you're just playing Hammond, it feels a bit weird just sitting there on a single keyboard. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to have the two keyboards have two different drawbar settings. There's little tricks that you do as you, you yeah. know, you're playing with your two hands. So, um, yeah, it has it has it has changed for me over over the years. Yeah, boys, I used to have, I used to use, at a Roland XP eighty or something. It wasn't even weighted keys then. And then I had a rack with all sorts of modules. Yeah. Um, and then I had a foot controller system which did all my patch changes for me. Wow. Um, a lot of people use main stage and have a laptop. I had a really bad experience <laughs> with main stage uh and it really put me off um i had a computer go down it was like dragging and then you know uh, i was getting this all horrible delay in the middle of a gig um and yeah and I, it put me off i think things are different now a lot of people use just soft synths now um and sometimes it'd be great to have like 
uh, Keyscape pianos or something like that to, to, to use. But I've been with Roland now for, I don't know, 15 years, maybe more. Um, I don't actively do a lot of stuff for Roland themselves, but um, they'd always been great on tour support. Uh, I own my gear, you know, it's all my own gear, but I, I've, I've still kind of endorsed Roland. Um, uh, and it's always just been for me, it's just that my RD2000, I love the piano on it, and it cuts through live so well. And that's the other thing, I mean, the, the RD for me has got enough other sounds for the gigs I do. The pads are great on it. The strings great. I just, you know, for the layering underneath the piano are good enough to use. I wish the roads sometimes were better on it, but I've done so much editing on it that I've, I feel like I've got a pretty good road sound now. That's great. So when when you're working with um track, are you controlling the track as well, or is that kind of done from off stage, or are you have you literally got that there and you're controlling all of that at the same time? Ninety percent of the time, I'm doing it. Um, okay. On Banana Rama, we uh, we have a playback guy. Um, and uh i think when i'm doing the gig i i will do start and stop um for it um if if th- this year unfortunately i haven't been able to do any of the banana rama gigs it had just been that kind of year where all the festivals had fallen on top of each other and it was always weekends everybody was out at weekends and so for the three artists that i've worked for there's been weekends where they've all got a gig yeah. so and when I've put a depth on Bananarama, the playback guy has been doing the start and stops just because he knows where where to where they, they, they kind of like what their spiel is and when they start. Otherwise it's always me running it, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. I mean I That's think not being a control freak. It's no. just you know, it just it just makes sense that, you know, I've done the programming. It, it's most of the time it's like my rig. Um and I'll know with Rowan I know inside out how he does his links and and when to go. And if I need to preempt, if there's a you know if there's a if it's a ballad and it's still a one bar count and it's quite slow, you don't want this. And this is blah 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 one two yeah, <laughs> and it's an awful yeah. gap. So you, you yeah. know it, it kind of makes sense that I do it. Do you feel very much on top of all the tech stuff? Because I know I know that's one thing I actually struggle with. I I feel the tech stuff worries me. <laughs> just because I'm I you know I'm I'm always like I'm constantly checking I've got the right leads and I've got the right adapters and I'm I'm quite sort of OCD about it. Do you feel like really on top of that stuff now or is it is it is there still part of you that's like oh have I got this is it you know is this all going to work and um no I feel on top of it and I'm confident uh, of, of you know I've used QLab now for many years. Mm. Um and for me touch wood it, it it has been a very very stable platform. Um I think with James Arthur, we we were using um, Ableton, and I don't know it, but luckily there was a playback guy. So uh, I was kind of in rehearsals doing everything on Logic and then making stems and then giving it over to a playback guy. And again, their playback guy on that, he ran everything. Um, I was only programming on that, but I, I, I it, it is all about what you use and what you know. Um, Studio-wise, I've always worked on Logic. I mean, yeah, going same. back to when when it was notator and it, and it was on, you know, on an Atari. Wow, yeah. Um, it's all what you know. People go, oh, what's best? Do we get Cubase or do we get Logic or do we get Digital Performer? Or what? It's up to you. Yeah. They all do exactly the same thing. You can get all the same plugins on all of them. So, um, but QLab I always like because it doesn't use a lot of the computer's processing power to run the program. It's very, very simple what it's doing. It's not a door. Yeah. Um, so you tend to find it's not putting too much strain on a laptop. Right. Um, and from that aspect, it's great. It's also very good that um, it incorporates video as well. No yeah. time, no time code need needed. Um, the, the, 
videos are, are cut to you to your programming with the click and you just slot them in as another stem hdmi output bam off you go yeah um, it's all very it's, cool it's a, it's a it's a great program for the life mm. side of things um you know you can have it from as little outputs to as many outputs as you want brilliant um you can throw as many stems onto one output if you want um so you know if you want you know if you've got a tambourine a shaker a triangle and all that you can you can have as many stems as you want on one particular output you're unlimited that's great um, how do you find playing with a click track is that something that's always come quite naturally to you or is it something yeah, you've had I've to learn i've yeah. always done it um yeah. there's you know everything i'm an every single track is to click um with ronan a few more things on on click now um the band is reduced in size. It used to be two keyboard players, it used to be two guitarists. So a lot of the songs were completely live, but we're, we're down to one keyboard player, one guitarist. So we've now ended up where there's, there's tracks where we want an acoustic guitar still and Greg play electric. So, um, but clicks always been there for me. Um, and uh, I don't even think about it. Um, if I can hear the click, then I'm usually not on the click. If right. You know I mean. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I actually don't. Uh, again, depending on the depending on the the gig and and how confident you are, but I don't actually have click that loud. Um, if I'm starting a song, the counts there, and no one else is playing, the click generally tends to be loud enough anyway uh, for where you're exposed and it's just you and the click. Um, you know, and unless I'm making sure the drummer's not you know drifting out, then I don't need it that loud. I trust yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, it will come to a breakdown where you need the click, then you can hear it because everything else has dropped away. Um, so no, I have. It doesn't bother me at all. Click. That's it just good, becomes yeah. second nature. You said you've had a really busy summer with loads and loads of gigs and touring and all that kind of thing. How do you find the whole touring lifestyle? I mean, you mentioned you've got a daughter as well. Before we started the, just always started the interview. How do you, how do you find? Um, how can how can a musician who's getting started in this world begin to balance those two worlds of being off doing these amazing gigs and also having some kind of stability at home? Well, what I will tell you would be totally different if you asked my wife that question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I imagine. She, <laughs> she, um, she was a, a singer. Um, so, yeah, she kind of uh, changed everything to, uh, to be a mum. Nothing changed for me. I'm still <laughs> yeah. doing it. Yeah. Um, I think obviously, yeah, for me, uh, for, just for me personally, uh, it, it, I don't like being away as much as, as I used to. Um, but, but touring for me, the tours have naturally got shorter anyway. Okay. Um, the days of, I mean, you know, I can remember Westlife in 2000 was six months. Right. I didn't go home. Um, funny, I came back single. Anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> might be something to do with yeah. that. Um, it's difficult. It is difficult to balance the two. Um, I think just, just you know, as as being any musician, um, balancing a relationship when you know you have to rely on on being away a lot and the evenings, um, you know, and it's always that thing. People go, oh, it's easy. It's just you know, you're only on stage for an hour. Yeah, but the whole day's gone. Yeah, you know, you're traveling there. It's the day's wiped out. So it's a day and a night. So it is difficult. Um, I think you need to be with someone creative who understands that mm -hmm. you do for a living what is your passion very lucky i do for a living what people do for a hobby yeah 
I'm forever grateful of that. Um, I never forget that. There are some people who just play for their spare time, you know. I'm lucky that I've I've earned a living from it for mm. 30 years. Um, uh, so it, it is it is difficult. Um, and it gets more and more difficult to, to think, you know, there's nothing in the diary next year. What am I going to do? Yeah. I think, I think every self-employed person has that. And I think for self-employed people, it's a worry. I think for musicians, it's even more of a worry. And particularly if you only work for a few artists and you've had those artists for a long time. Yeah. What if they don't tour next year? What are you going to do then? So um, there's a big uncertainty here. Um, yeah, it's like with with my, my little girl. It's like you know she wants to be a musician. Please no. <laughs> I'd rather she was a vet or an accountant or a solicitor. Yeah. Um, and my dad said, get a proper job. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if she if she wanted to, I would I would support her. I, I, yeah. I would support her if she wanted to do music. But but it, it is it is a worry. Um, and this goes back to the reading side of things, Adam. Which is why you know if you if you can fall back on on the reading side of things and you can go and do a West End show or, uh, you know, a, a, a tour of a West End show. Um, I think it's good to have that to fall back on. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's still, there's still some people who aren't amazing readers. And I think if you, if you got approached to do a West End show or you tried to push to get one, um, you're not expected always to go and sight read, you get time with the charts. So, um and if you if you if you knew the md enough and said look i can do this i can do yeah. it i just need time with the charts to learn yeah. a bit you, you can you do know, it you probably could still do it but yeah it's a worry it's a worry of, of of balancing that so yes this year has been really good um if i think back to the beginning of june i was already looking in the diary going oh my god what am i going to do the rest of the year and then it just it it comes in there's you know there's little bits that come in I'm lucky that I have my production side as well to fall back a little bit on. Um, I do uh, I do a lot of tracks for cruise ship shows, um, which actually came through my brother. Um, whereas he, he, it came about because he he was doing the more kind of orchestral kind of side of things, or if they were kind of musical um, shows that kind of thing. But then they started doing a lot of modern production covers within the song in the, within the show, so. I came in and started doing those. So that keeps me afloat when I'm not touring. Um, and just as a couple of artists that I, I, I work for, um, again, it, it can be, you know, tracks for an album or it can be production for, for live shows, for full playback shows or for click shows. Mm. Um, but I mean, the more now as I get, the more now I, I would love to be doing more studio stuff, but I would never, ever want to stop playing live yeah there's something about playing live isn't there that's uh, just a completely different thing it's it, 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 it it's just yeah there's, there's nothing else like it there was nothing else like it it's an amazing feeling so i wanted to ask you as well i mean a, a lot of your time as you, as you just explained seems to be spent doing a lot of other people's projects but you do actually have your own project as well the lynn project am i right the <laughs> 1980s funk project do you just want to tell me how that started my wife this morning because she just i'm on my back this morning going what are you doing with that why are you not doing anything with it <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's funny as well because it, 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 it's a sign because literally this morning we um I had an email from this morning. Somebody else had heard it and they wanted to do a, a remix of one of the songs. It was a dance act and they uh, like a DJ thing and they, and they loved it. So 
ages ago, last year, beginning of last year, I, I sort of gave the stems away and it came back to there. I was like, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. I haven't heard it for ages. And it, they've just turned it into like a club track oh, and just used little excerpts of the song. Um, so uh, Dan Carpenter, who I did the project with, I, I sent it and went, we need to get this out. We've both been very, very lazy with it. It started in lockdown as so many projects as so many people did um where we you know what we're going to do you know there was not much going it was nothing going on um and 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 dan is a incredible trumpet player um and a great arranger um not a programmer and i got an idea and he sort of said you can have a look at this he said and maybe just kind of like you know kind of program some sounds around it and, and i got nothing to do and i did it and i loved it and it, and it turned out really well. That's where it started. Um, and as it all started easing down, we were started able to kind of get together a little bit. Um, and we just started building this um, these, these tracks up, which was purely for fun, for right. us. There wasn't any commercial interest in it at all. It was like... Um, our love of of that of that genre of music of that kind of like the the, the soul the funk boogie um big horn arrangements yeah um i've had a listen it sounds great the, the only cool. thing was just like to to make it you know so it, lynn came out is all lindrum there's one song where it's just tr808 but otherwise it was all based on lindrum samples um a lot of roland cloud yeah juno on a six and jupiter 80 and juno 60 stuff and then a few kind of like DX sounds and stuff like that. But it was pure fun. Um, it was like, you know, and then the ballad was like, it ended up as like five and a half minutes. But, well, why not? Why does it got to be three minutes and 15 seconds long? Why we put we put a key change in it and then did a sax solo? Why not? Because there was no one to say, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, so we've, um, it, it, it's, it's, I want to say it's gathering dust. Um but we're going to try and we're try and get it out at the end of this year. Oh, um, fantastic! It's, I can't wait to hear it. It sounds. Um, I checked out some of the videos on Instagram. They sound very, very cool, and I love like the synthy kind of element of it, and I love the kind of a lot of the grooves on it. It sounds great. So yeah, you should definitely, definitely yeah, do something with it. You know, I mean, we've got we've got some great vocalists right now. We were lucky to to um to get Jackie Graham on it. Um, Amazing. Who you know, obviously, I grew up on listening to Jackie's stuff and. Um, and and it, and it always seems, seems surreal, and then the next thing you know, it's like, oh my god, she's standing next to me doing a vocal. Um, and she'll kill me for saying that because she'd be like, "Oh, you're saying I'm old." <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but it was an amazing, it was amazing to work with her. Um, and then I, you know, I called up on um, on Sam Bailey from X Factor, and sort of a few other people. We kind of you know got them in to sort of sing the lines. Anna, my wife, she wrote a lot of the top line um melody and lyrics and, and she originally demoed them and she's still staying on a couple of the songs unless i can get shaka khan <laughs> um, <laughs> hopefully fingers crossed yeah so uh, yeah i'll let you know i'll let you know what's uh if anybody else is out there and owns a nice little record company and wants to release it mm. then you know <laughs> so i always finish up finish up uh sort of each interview by asking kind of is there something you haven't done yet that you're like oh i'd love to do this you know whether that's a recording project or a live gig or is there something that's still inside you that you haven't got the opportunity to do yet um yeah um i mean i suppose that's down to to to, to artists mm. uh, i guess i i would still love to go and do i'd love to go and do a tour that wasn't a like a pop artist okay um you know what kind of uh, thing 
they're like pipe dreams. Like, okay, yeah, I'd love to go and play a hammer for Michael McDonald. Right. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I love Michael. McDonald. It ain't gonna happen. Um, yeah. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I don't think it will happen. Yeah. Um, no, it's something like that. Um, I'm. Uh, I'm lucky. I've I've had a I've had a really good career out of this. Mm. Um, I've been to some amazing places. Um, I haven't done much work in the states. I've done one little tour. Uh, maybe maybe a tour of the states would be really good. Um, mm. And again, that might be with, with you know with an artist. It's not you know some uh, a, a UK pop artist. Um, it's always been pop music. I love pop music. I have to. I, I listen to all sorts of stuff. Um, um, I'm, I'm lucky that I've been doing some of the production I've been doing has been kind of almost country, country pop. Um, I, I did an album early this year for an artist called Gina Lana, which was great fun doing. Um, I got to play all my country piano licks. Um, so um, I guess that would be nice, actually. Go and play for a country artist. Okay. Um, That's the one. Then you've got your worries about being a player then. I've got a love going, uh, you know, I wouldn't last 10 seconds if I went to Nashville. <laughs> I put myself against some of the players that are there. I wouldn't yeah. stand a chance. <laughs> I was with a guy yesterday, um, a guy called Fraser, who he lives in Nashville. And he was just talking about, he actually wrote a song, I think, for Ronan Keating, one, the one with Emily Sande. Um, oh, right, okay. Yes, he's one of the songwriters on that. And um, yeah, he was just talking about Nashville. And I think after hearing him speak yesterday, I was like, man, I have to go. I just sounds like the most incredible place. He was talking about Music Row, where there's all these songwriters. And, yeah. You know. Did you just feel like you go over there and you might just get sent home with your tail between your legs? <laughs> maybe, yeah. I'd go over there to experience it and to maybe to uh, be a fly on the wall, but... yeah. Um, yeah, I just uh, the, the the confidence as a player would would rapidly diminish if I went to Nashville. <laughs> right, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Rich, it's been absolutely great chatting to you. Whereabouts can people go and um, check out your music? Um, well, at the moment, if they want to listen to the Lynn stuff, um, it's just um, Lynn Project Official on Instagram. Um, that's uh, otherwise, yeah, it's come and see a Ronan gig, come and see a Boys Life gig or come and see a Banana Rama gig. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm sure they will. Richard, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great chatting. You're more than welcome. Anytime. Thanks so much to Richard for coming on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed chatting with him. Do go and check out all those links in the description and go and hear him play live. Thanks so much for listening. Do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.